All right, good evening. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, Pastor Stephen, leading us out. I'm excited about October, looking forward to it. And again, one of the things that uh, we take as important here in the life of our church are our life groups. We want everybody who's a member or who is a part of our church involved in a life group is where kind of the center of, of the life of the church comes out. There's a lot of things happening. Um, this room is a reflection of that. Did anybody notice that it's set up different this week than last week? All of you did. How many of y'all complained? Don't, don't raise your hand. Oh, there you go. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so uh, it's okay. Yeah, this room even tonight reflects the life of the church. For this morning, all of our ladies started our, their, their meetings together this morning. I put on my pink Taylor's women's shirt. Some of y'all were here, weren't you? Can y'all testify that I had that on? I had that on and came up and spoke to them. But all of our ladies uh, have their women's uh, Wednesday women things going on, and there's three different things happening for them. But each one of those has more ladies signed up in it this year than ever before. Isn't that a blessing? And so just excited. And this room was set up for that purpose. And so that's why it is the way it is. And so that testifies to a lot of great things happening. It's also in that, saying that, with all of those things, it's in our life groups that we really center a lot of the, the work and what we do in our, in our church. It's through our life groups that we have care, where we care for one another. It's our small group ministry where we care for one another. It's where we dive into the word together as a, as a people. It's in our life groups that service projects go through whenever service projects happen. A lot of that happens through our life groups. And so one of the questions people ask me, maybe where they can serve or what can, they can do, that's going to be my first question. What, you know, what life group are you in? Because most of those have, have adopted a service place and, and all these things. So with that in mind, as we go in through the month of impact, to get the most impact in your life will be for you to be a part of a life group. And if you're just now starting with us and hadn't found one, ask us. Uh, we tell our life group leaders, it's okay for people to come in and try you out and leave. Don't get offended or upset because we want you to be able to find a good fit for you and what that is. So really excited about that coming and, and hopefully uh, let us know if there's any way we can help you find a place to settle in as we look toward that month of October. Um, turn with me tonight to Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 14 there, starting there. Leviticus chapter 5, we'll look together at verse 14 is what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to try to get through on down into chapter 6. We'll see. I mean, who knows? 7. I don't even know if we'll get there. But I said last week we were going to do a lot, and I did a lot less than I said. So we'll just see where we leave off, if that's okay. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. When we remember as we come to Leviticus the setting that this is given. And you can kind of see it. If you go back to chapter one, you see the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Remember this, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Remember Leviticus is set there at Mount Sinai. They're at Mount Sinai and the Lord is speaking to Moses directly here. Just as he gave the 10 commandments to the people, then Moses goes up and meets with him. And it tells us that he entered into the tent of meeting to meet face-to-face -face with the Lord, right? And so this is the outcome of those meetings. So this is while the people are at Mount Sinai, which they stayed there for about a year. 
And so they're gathered there. And if you remember, Leviticus has no small talk as we talked about. There's no like, hey, here's some setting and here's some things. It just gets straight into business. And so in Leviticus, it gets straight into business and it starts off with the offerings, the regular offerings that people are supposed to bring. Now, the importance of those offerings, if you, uh, as we talked about just by review, was because God saved his people out of the bondage of Egypt. He saved them out of the bondage of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea into taking them to the promised land. They're on the way there as they stop at Sinai to hear, a way to put it is to hear God's new government. Here's how we are going to establish you as a people and here's how you are to live now together. And so you see the Ten Commandments become the basis of this. Then he has the case law. Here's how you apply this. And so ultimately you see God is establishing his new government with his people. And the reason for that is God saved them. He redeemed them so he could what? Be with them. Y'all remember me saying that? He wanted to dwell with his people. He wants to be with them. He didn't just save them and leave them. He wants to be with them. And really the whole grand narrative of scripture is about this. And we see it here with the people in Israel. But how does the book end? Has anybody read Revelations? None of you have read Revelations because it's Revelation. It doesn't have an S, y'all. Remember that. Somebody gave me a tie. And y'all know I love ties. I wear them all the time. And somebody gave me a tie in my first church, and they were so excited about it. Allison, you remember that tie. It had all the books of the Bible on the tie, like a library. <laughs> Beautiful tie. Man, who wouldn't want it? Some of y'all may have one just like it. It's great. All of them. And it got to Revelation, and the tie said Revelations. And that was always my excuse. Can't wear that tie. It's wrong. You know what I'm saying? You got to have... But if you read the book of Revelation, what happens? At the end of it, God is dwelling with his people. He's dwelling with them. That's the whole point. He saves us to be with us. He wants to dwell with his people. You start to see that's what it takes here in, as they come through Exodus and Leviticus. What does it take for a holy God to dwell with an unholy, sinful people? All of these sacrifices, all of this stuff to do. All of these things must happen for God to dwell with his people, his sinful people. And so Leviticus kicks off, and you can see it. That's where it goes, and, and, and it gets there really, really it starts uh, intently back in those, these chapters. It kicks off with, with five sacrifices that people were to make regularly. You remember those sacrifices. It starts off with the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and tonight we'll talk about the guilt offerings. It talks about these five sacrifices, but if you look through this, you see over and over again, and really the refrain starts here in this section even more so, but you see where it says, like in chapter 4, verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and you see it again in verse 14, where we are tonight, chapter 5, verse 14, the Lord spoke to Moses. And now you're going to see it over and over again. 6, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. 6, 8, the Lord spoke to Moses. 6, 19, the Lord spoke to Moses. Y'all get the point. Over and over again, this is God's word given to Moses for his people. And that, that means that the people were to be obedient to God's word. This stands as the authority of God. 
The word of God is the authority of God given to his people for us to, to put. And remember that this is not a contract to be negotiated. There, it's not like the Lord is saying to his people, okay, I saved you out of Egypt. Now, I've got some things I need y'all to do. What is it that y'all would like? Right? What is it that you would like from me? That's not what happens here. That's not what God says. I saved you. Now, here's how you are to live. Here's how you are to dwell. So not only, and this is the double effect, because not only did he create us, and as creator, guess what he gets to do? He gets to make the rules, right? Me and my brother, we used to fight a lot. And most of the fight was over the rules to the game. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And whenever we make up our own game, you had to go back to who made this game up and who gets to set the rules. Ultimately, that's what the Bible tells us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everything belongs to him. Therefore, if he has made this out of nothing, then surely, if we believe, uh, as one pastor says, the hardest verse in the Bible to get past is Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning was God. And if you believe that, everything else is easy. Because if he truly is who he says he is from the beginning, eternal, and he spoke everything out of nothing, then surely he's the one who gets to make the rules as to how we are to live and what we are to do. But here the people of God start to see that double portion, if you will. Not only has God created them, but they rebelled from him as creator, and yet he came back and did what? Saved them. Redeemed them. So he's created them and now he's even saved them out of bondage. Redeemed them out of bondage. So now even more so should the people do what? Seek to live obediently to the one who's created them and saved them. And so here God says what to do and the people are to do it. The authority of God is seen in it. And here ultimately you have verse 14, the Lord spoke to Moses, which gets to our Chapter 5, verse 14, this last of the offerings that were to be given by the people on a regular basis. The first three, as we talked about, were what we call voluntary offerings, or many have called in the past free will offerings, meaning you were to give them voluntarily, not by compulsion. They weren't necessary ultimately, but they could give them voluntarily. So that's the voluntary ones, those first three. These last two, last week we discussed the sin offering. That was not voluntary. You must offer up sacrifice for your sins because your sins have to be forgiven if you're going to dwell with God. And so that one, sin offering, and now this one is not voluntary either, guilt offering. Those two go together, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the guilt offering really, the guilt offering uh, shows us as the sin offering is offered to cover our sins, the guilt offering shows us how to repent. Shows us what repentance looks like, right? And so if you see this guilt offering, you'll see uh, what happens. The guilt offering, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith, this is the Hebrew word asham here, to be or to feel guilty. And how do you feel guilty is if you have committed a breach of faith, if you, have been, if you have been unfaithful to God. In other words, if you have, I just said, all of this is him saying the Lord said, the Lord said. And so we talked about last week what sin was when not obeying what God said, right? 
And so not obeying his word, uh, uh, we missing the mark, swerving from the path. We talked about all of those things, breaking God's law. And so ultimately he's saying here, if you commit a breach of faith, which is not believing what God said is true and not believing what God said is what? Good. Oftentimes those two things go together and they're slightly different. It's not just that we keep God's law because he's some dictator that we have to keep that is just forcing it down our throat and he's making these things up, right? We talked about this when we did the Ten Commandments a lot. It's not as if God is making these laws up just going, let me see you guys dance, right? Let me just make you do something. Let me see how you're going to do it. God is doing these laws because these are what's best for us. In other words, the Ten Commandments is how you flourish as a human being. By keeping those laws, you, you're having your best life. You want your best life, you know what I'm saying? Then you be obedient to God. You want your best life, then you follow what he said. And so these laws are not meant as oppressive things that hold you back. These laws are meant to, for us to flourish and for our good. Because if you break them, then you're standing against a holy God who's sovereign over the universe and has the power of life and breath in you, right? And so it's foolishness to stand against him. If you want to flourish, then you obey him. And what does the scripture say? Like 1 John, God's commandments are our joy. They're our joy because we realize this is for our good. So it's not just that we obey God's commandments because he says them, we should, but we also obey God's commandments because they are for our good. And so here, as he does this, he says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith to disobey God's commandments is to not believe. Does that make sense to everybody? To disobey God's commandments is to not believe. Faith is belief, and to disobey God's commandments is to not believe God is who he says he is. Now, understand, let's put that into context as well. A breach of faith is the same thing as sin here because you're not believing God is who says who he says. So if you sin, what is it that you're ultimately saying in sin? You're saying that I know better than God. God has given me a commandment but I know better than him. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me in this situation. I know what's best for me in this situation. I'm smarter than he is. That's exactly what happened in the garden, right? Satan deceived Adam and Eve and convinced them that it would be better for them to eat that fruit than to not eat that fruit. God said, don't eat it because you'll surely die. And Satan convinced them, you won't surely die. In fact, you'll be just as smart as God is. And so ultimately, God had, uh, Satan had convinced them, he had convinced them that if you break this rule God has, you'll be just as smart as he is. You'll be better than him. And so they thought it was better for them to eat that fruit than to obey God's rule. Well, every sin goes back to that. You believe it's better for you to do what you think is right in your head rather than obey God's commandment. And so it's a breach of faith. You're not believing God's law is best for you. It's not what's right for you, so you break it. And so here he says, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins 
unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as in compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. If anyone is unfaithful, if anyone has taken something that is sacred and made it profane, if anyone who has sinned against God and been unfaithful, they must pay it back. Y'all see that word restitution? He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. Y'all see that? So not only do you make offering for your sin to cover your sins, but now this guilt offering is you making offering to pay restitution back to God for your breaching of sin. That's where we get the idea of repentance from. And so this offering is teaching us what it means to repent ultimately for us. And that's what we want to we kind of get in tonight. I want to note here, because we talked about this last week, that verse 15 where it says, if anyone, uh, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things. What does it mean? We talked about this last week. What does it mean to sin unintentionally? To sin unintentionally, like we saw back in chapter 4, verse 2, to sin unintentionally is any sin we may do out of ignorance or any sin we may do out of negligence. The scripture teaches us that even if you sin out of ignorance, you don't know better. Or out of negligence, you forget or just not uh, didn't do something out of omission of or commission, whatever it may be. Any sin you commit unintentionally is what he's saying, ignorance or negligence, you are still guilty. You're still guilty. Even though you sin out of ignorance, you're still guilty. Even though you sin out of negligence, you're still guilty before God because sin has to be dealt with. God cannot in his holiness... In his holiness, he cannot sweep sin under the rug. Every sin has to be dealt with. And so even if you sin unintentionally or negligent, or you're negligent in sin, you are still guilty. That's what he's saying. Isn't this something? We talked about this last week. How many of y'all have ever had this conversation with your children? Children fit perfectly here because here you got God taking these kids out of Egypt and bringing them through, and he's going to have to deal with them. And sometimes they get obstinate. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes, y'all have ever had kids this way. My kids, two of them are here, they're angels. Great kids. Look at them over there, just glowing. But many times kids believe that when they mess up and they say what? Sorry, then everything's okay. It's all good now. Oh, you said sorry. Okay, great. Everything's fine then. But that's not what the scripture teaches here. That even in your sin, you have to find something to sacrifice, as it tells us, to cover your sins, and you've got to bring a guilt offering of repentance to the Lord. You've got to bring a guilt offering of repentance to the Lord, even if it's unintentional. You have to have this. You have to bring this. Now, we talked again last week, the opposite of unintentional is brazen sin, right? The opposite of unintentional is knowing what you're doing and sinning anyway, and I want to just remind you of what we said about that. And this will be all. But if you remember back over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So here, if you read Leviticus, all of the sacrifices that can be brought are for those who've sinned how? Unintentionally. We saw it last week. We saw it last week where it says it over and over again. Anyone who sins unintentionally, verse 2 of chapter 4. Down, you see it again in verse 13. The whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. So you have these sacrifices that could be made. So what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 10, verse 26, is it's drawing our attention back to the offerings and the sacrifices. If you sin deliberately, then there's no sacrifice for you. Because in Leviticus, there's no sacrifice for those who were disobeying deliberately before the Lord, right? Because you're mocking who God is and what he's done. And you know the answer, you know the difficulty, and you are intentionally sinning against him. Well, there's no hope. There's no hope if you keep going that route. It's for those here, he said, who have unintentionally sinned, we do have something. So it reminds us that this is not, all of these offerings are not about the ritual itself. We like to think that. No, this is not like hocus pocus, everything's okay. This is not like, let me just make this offering and it just all goes away. And so we can just check the box off and say, oh, I got to make my offering today. And I just check the box, boom, 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 and everything's fine. Actually, what matters here is the heart of those who bring it. What matters is the heart of those who's coming because true worship is a matter of the heart, right? And so if you're coming to the Lord with your sacrifice and you're thinking, you owe me God for this and this is just, I can just go through the routine and it's okay, then God says, I don't honor that. You can sacrifice all the bulls and the goats you want to. I'm not going to honor someone who thinks I owe them this. The sacrifice comes out of our brokenness for our own sin. And so what does it say? The prophets, what the Lord requires of us is a broken and contrite heart. So here it's the one who comes. And when they sin unintentionally, in any of the holy things of the Lord, they have a sacrifice that has to be made. Now, I want us to look back at a couple things. I want us to look through the scriptures and then we'll, we'll see what true repentance looks like, I believe. I want us to see that what we've been taught, what we have been taught and seen already, what will be taught throughout the text is that it is God himself who pays for the guilty. It's God himself who pays for the guilty. Turn back with me to Genesis 15. We were in Genesis just a couple weeks ago. And y'all remember it well. I probably just jog in your memory. I'm sure y'all go home and you'll be like, just in the middle of the day. You know how I do Andy Griffith quotes? I'm sure y'all do the same thing for my sermons and just like, man. Remember what pastor said in April of 2022? So let me remind you. Chapter 15 in chapter 15, God is making a promise with Abram. And he causes Abram to go into a deep sleep. He puts him in a deep sleep. And as the sun's going down, you see that in verse 12? Great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. He's talking about Egypt. He's telling them what's coming. But I will bring judgment on 
the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. We saw how that came true. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in a fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, if I put these pieces, if you go back up there to verse 8, the Lord tells him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down, the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, this is symbolic. This is how you make a covenant, right? You're making promises. This is the ceremony. And this symbolic ceremony is happening in, a, in an intense way. You take the heifer, you take, which heifer is one of the great words in the English language. Is it not? I mean, just the way you say it. Don't, I wouldn't encourage you to use it all the time. But you take the animals and you literally cut them in half. And you cut them in half and then you spread them out. Now imagine what happens when this scene is. You cut an animal in half and you spread it out. What's going to be in between them? Blood and everything else, right? So you cut an animal in half and you spread it out. And you do that all the way. And you have this, you create this aisle, if you will, to walk between. And this was the symbolic nature of what they called cutting a covenant. Where two sides make promises to each other and they want to keep those promises. And so what you do then, as you make your promises, you come up with what that covenant is, which means promise. You come up with that, what that covenant is, what those promises are. You make these, you cut these animals in half and you spread them apart. And then you too walk between these two animals. And the symbolic nature is, if we don't keep our promise, then this is what will happen to us. This is what will happen. So you cut a covenant, right? Well, if you read on, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates. He goes on to describe what he's going to do. Now, notice what happens here in verse 17. Abram goes into a deep sleep. And what is it that passes between these animals, a smoking pot and a flaming torch, which are symbolic pictures of the Lord God himself. We'll see this again later with fire in different places, in different ways. And so what's happening here is the Lord is saying, I'm making a promise to you that I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you a great Abraham. I'm making these promises to you. And then he puts a deep sleep over Abraham. You know who doesn't walk in between these animals? Abraham. The Lord is saying, if this promise isn't kept, I'm the one who will take the punishment. I'm the one who will take, what's, what's, take that punishment for those who are guilty of not keeping this. And so even when his people don't keep it, what is the Lord saying? I'll still take it. We see this later whenever they make a charge against the Lord in the wilderness because he has them out there and they don't have any water. 
and they make this charge and the Lord again in a smoking pot in the flaming Shekinah glory of God as it says he rests on a rock and he takes the judgment from Moses and Moses strikes the rock and what happens? Water comes out. The Lord God constantly steps in for his people even though he's not guilty and he says I'll take the punishment for you to make sure this covenant is true. And so we can truly say that the Lord Jesus on the cross was cut for us, right? Torn in pieces on our behalf because he kept that covenant for us. And let's see how he did that because this same language is used over in Isaiah 53. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this famous passage of the suffering servant speaking of Jesus who will come for us. This really starts in chapter 52, verse 13. I'm not going to read it all, but you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. What you see in Isaiah 53, just to kind of remember, we have some principles when we come to learning the Bible, right? First of all, the, the main character of Scripture is who? God, right? The best interpreter of Scripture is what? Scripture, And so what teaches us what things look like even best is when we read Scripture. Just keep reading your Bible. You remember I told y'all that's what my professor kept saying to me. And I told him, why do I need your class then, you know? <laughs> Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, you see two things. One, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we seemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was, verse 5, he was what? Pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Y'all know this is the language of the sin offering. It was our sin placed upon him, and he was crushed, and he was wounded, and he was pierced for our sins. So the language of Isaiah 53 is straight from that Leviticus passage of the sin offering on our behalf. Here comes the perfect lamb, and he was the one who took our sin, and he was crushed for our iniquities. We placed the sin on him, he was crushed for it. But look down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for what? Guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Not only is this lamb who is the suffering servant on our behalf the sin offering that takes our place, but he's also the what? The guilt offering. He's the guilt offering here. He comes, he shall be, he shall uh, see his offspring, he shall prolong his days when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So not only is this one the one who will the one who will be our sin offering, but he's also our guilt offering. And so the Lord is the one who's going to pay the penalty that we are supposed to pay. Uh, uh, Genesis 15 tells us that. He's the one who walks through the covenant promises. Everything's on him. He says, if this covenant's broken, even if it's not broken by me, but by you, I'll still take the punishment. And then Isaiah 53 shows us how he's going to take the punishment. He's going to send his servant to come and suffer in our place. 
He's going to die as our sacrifice for sins, and he's going to die as our guilt offering for our place. So this guilt offering that we see in Leviticus that was coming to us, what comes to us ultimately as we see is that God is the one who pays it. It becomes him who pays it. And now we're going we're to go to another place. Turn with me to Romans 3. Kind of keep the, the train rolling, if you will. This is exactly what Paul gets to in Romans 3. You, you see the scriptures unfold. It, it may seem a little bit cloudy and unclear in Genesis 15, because you got to understand the covenant and how he sets those animals apart. Then whoever walks through it has to take the punishment if it's not kept right. And you say, okay, I get that. But then you see how he's going to do it in Isaiah 53. It tells us a little bit more by sending his servant who will be the sacrifice for us, both for our sin and for our guilt. And then he tells us in Romans 3 exactly what happened, right? So as scripture does, remember scripture unfolds for us in this, progressively reveals it like, like y'all remember that old guy that paints paintings, right? I won't mention his name because every time I mention Bob Ross, somebody in here gives me a Bob Ross calendar. I got socks and I got a Bob Ross bobblehead. You guys are great. I love y'all. But like a painter who paints a picture, that's what the scripture's doing. And the first stroke is Genesis 15. The Lord is going to take the punishment of whoever breaks the promises. Even if we break it, he takes the punishment. And then Isaiah 53 is another stroke. He takes that punishment by sending his servant to be our sacrifice for our sins and our guilt. And then he sends Jesus. And what Paul says in Romans 3 is he's telling us exactly what happens. But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested, seen, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation we will see this word propitiation in Leviticus chapter 16 it will come again he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one whose faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who has come and God put him forward as the one who would be our sacrifice in our place. He takes away our sins. That's what propitiation means. He takes away the wrath of God for us. He's our sacrifice. It's Jesus. And so now for anyone, anyone who sins, the only sacrifice that's available is Jesus. And remember that unintentional thing. Y'all remember that, right? Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, one of the most excruciating scenes in the scriptures, the Son of God, is praying in the garden the night excuse me in, on the cross he's praying he has these sayings it's crucifixion 23 34 and Jesus said 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do y'all see how that ties back to Leviticus? Anyone who sins unintentionally, there is a sacrifice for you if you'll come. And Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're sinning. Forgive them. But they're doing it unintentionally. And there you have the sacrifice on our behalf speaking out for us. Even in their ignorance, they didn't know. Even their ignorance, they're guilty before God and deserve death. But the Lord Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Ignorance, negligence, whatever the case, they need to be forgiven. But God has made a sacrifice for those who will come to him. Y'all know what's neat in Luke in Luke's gospel, when it talks about all of these around the cross, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, there are a list, really, in Luke's gospel of people who have put Jesus on the cross there. You have the Roman soldiers, right? They put Jesus on the cross there. They're guilty of it. They've done it. You have the Pharisees. They're guilty of it. They've done it. You have the priests. They're guilty of it. You have a large crowd that screams, crucify him. They're guilty of it. So you see in this, when Jesus is speaking, he says to the Father, about this Roman soldier, about this large crowd, about this Pharisee, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Y'all know who wrote the book of Luke, right? Luke. That's an easy one, y'all. Y'all should get that one. Y'all also know who wrote the book of Acts, right? If you notice in the book of Acts, and I don't think it's a coincidence, who were some of the major conversions? You have a Roman soldiers who put Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And in Acts chapter 10, who is one of the first Gentiles to be converted? A Roman centurion. You see, you, see you have, you have the, the Pharisees. Who is the great Pharisee that was converted? The Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. You see, you have, not only that, you have the, the, the jailer who was, uh, who was converted there, who, who held them. You have the priests who, was convert, who were converted in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. You have the large crowd that's converted in Acts chapter 2. In other words, you see Luke tying together. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And what happens in Acts is you see how the forgiveness comes to the Roman centurions. It comes to the Pharisees. It comes to the large crowds. It comes to all of those who would believe. It's like the Lord is saying, all of those, anyone, even the ones who were single-handedly helping put Jesus on the cross, God's forgiveness comes to them comes to them because Jesus paid for it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And so there's countless times that you see this. You see it in Acts chapter 3. I can, I can refer to you, you to several of them. Acts chapter 3, verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. That's not the right passage. Verse 17. Good grief. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in what, Paul, uh, John, uh, Peter says. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, he says. Or you, you, you can keep going. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Y'all don't have to flip to all of them. I'll, I'll get there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
13 and 14. That got me nervous now. Hope these are right. I thank him, this is verse 12, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Y'all see what Paul's saying? Paul said, what was the thing? He received mercy because he acted ignorantly. He acted ignorantly. He comes down and he keeps going. You can go to Hebrews chapter 5. It does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 9, same, same thing. It speaks about how God's grace comes to those who were formerly ignorant of it. My point in saying this is all of this ties back to Leviticus. What is he saying? He's saying that those who sin against God in their ignorance unintentionally, there is sacrifice awaiting to you. What you can't do is look God in the face, know the truth, and turn away from him and sin against him. What you can't do is intentionally, brazenly stand up to God. He will not allow it, right? He will not allow it. But for anyone who feels guilty, look back with me. In chapter 4, when he talks about the sin offering, verse 13, if a whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, you go down to the end of that verse, do the things of the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize what? Their guilt. You see it over in verse 23, a leader who sins unintentionally and realizes his guilt. That's verse 22. You see it in verse 20, 27. Common people sins unintentionally and realizes his guilt. You see that even if we sin unintentionally and realize our guilt, there remains a sacrifice for us. And what he means by realizing our guilt then is that we recognize that we are a sinner who deserves death, who deserves the punishment of God. But God honors the sacrifice we bring as he has commanded us and told us. And ultimately for us, what I've tried to show throughout the scripture is Jesus is that offering. He is the sin offering on our behalf. He is the guilt offering on our behalf. So what's left for us? If Jesus is that offering, what is left for us? What's left for us is repentance. Faith, trusting in him, and repentance. That's why repentance is so important. And what this is teaching us, this guilt offering, is teaching us that this is where it comes from. It comes from the idea that when we sin, then we recognize not only does the offering pay, that we must give something back, if you will. And so he says it. He says it down in 6. He says, uh, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has opposed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely... In any of these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or by the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything by which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. Do y'all see what he's saying? Not only do you give back what you took, but you add more to it. And so those who are sinners recognize that it was not only wrong to sin, we must restore what we have done, and we even give back more. We even give back more. Ultimately, this is what 
repentance looks like. Now, repentance is a word that's not always in vogue. I got a good little book here. Uh, The book was called Repentance and the 20th Century Man by C. John Miller. Great little book. Uh, Obviously, you name a book, Repentance and the 20th Century Man, when it turns to the 21st century, you have to revise it. Repentance in the 21st century, man. That's what you'll find in our title now. But I find his chapter here very helpful. His chapter is called Repentance and It's Counterfeit. Because quite often, this is our problem, right? We think we're repenting, but that's really not what we're doing. He calls the counterfeit to repentance penance. You may have heard that word. It's a, a Catholic um, sacrament, if you will, and the idea of penance. But he says, here's the difference. And he gives several things. First, penance centers on what man does. Penance centers on, is a man-centered idea rooted in the human heart, which as we think about it and what he's after is he's saying, so penance is focused on us. Penance focuses on us, what we can get, what we can do, how it makes us feel, what is our desire in this thing. It's man-centered. And I can tell y'all that in the Christian life, you got there's a good little saying that you can have. The saying is, if it's God-centered, it's good. If it's man-centered, it's bad. And so ultimately, penance focuses on a man-centered understanding. It's centered is on us and how we feel and what is most important for us. If you read in, in chapter 6 here, on into chapter 6 in Leviticus, it's not focused on us at all. It's focused on what we give back and what we do in return. Also, penance then. Penance for us is also, it's all, I'm trying to find it in the book, which would be helpful. Number two. Number two, penance. Man-centered. My goodness. It's all right. Is this awkward for anybody other than me? Good. Thank y'all. Penance is not only man-centered. I think I'm missing something. This is really awkward for me now. I'm good. Yeah, penance is man-centered, and penance also focuses on the belief from others. So oftentimes, we like to find relief from somebody else, right? How many of y'all feel better when you see somebody else sin more than you? How many of y'all feel better about that? It doesn't do anything to deal with your sin. But you feel better about yourself, don't you? Penance not only feels better in focusing on us and what we do, it also, we like to get permission from other people. How many of y'all like to go to other people and ask them, hey, what would you do in this? And you like to hear from them, oh man, you handled that fine, right? You get absolved from it because somebody else says it's okay. Penance does not go to God, it goes to man. It's man-centered. And so ultimately, what should it look like for us If penance is man-centered and it looks for its appeasement in man, what what should repentance look like? Not its counterfeit. True repentance shows remorse. True repentance shows genuine sorrow 
Not selfish sense of being caught, but a genuine sorrow for doing wrong against someone who loves you and cares for you. I know you've all experienced that. Well, every time we sin, we should have that same idea. That truly, we're talking about the God who saves us, the God who sustains us, the God who made us, and when we sin, we're sinning against him, right? And so ultimately, there should be some sense of genuine sorrow for our sin. We should hate our sin. True repentance comes out of a hatred and sorrow for our sin. Not selfishly, but because you've hurt and offended God. You've hurt and offended God. True repentance renounces sin. True repentance renounces sin. In other words, you turn from it. You hate it. You don't want to do it anymore. You don't want to pursue it. You don't want it anymore. You've sinned, but that's, you, you're, not, you're not after that again. You, you want to stop doing it, right? True repentance has a renounces sin. It shows remorse for our sin and sorrow, and it renounces sin. True repentance seeks to make what we did wrong right. True repentance seeks to make what we did wrong right, which is seen in our actions, not only toward God and faithfulness to him, but toward others. Asking forgiveness, pursuing reconciliation with others. True repentance does not allow us to live in peacefully, happily in opposition with others. Now, truly, there's some situations that are just tough, and I'm sure every one of y'all can go, but you don't know what my sister did. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> every one of you can do it. But the believer, the one who's been forgiven, the one who recognizes that we're sinners and God has sent his son to be the sin offering and the guilt offering for us who've done what we could not do. He's done what that. Because the bull, blood of bulls and goats could never do what he's done. True repentance says when we see that, that we not only hate our sin, but we also want to make it right. And so when we recognize how much we've been forgiven, man, shouldn't we be quick to forgive others? And I say this generally to all of you because I know it's a hard pill to swallow. But no matter, and I say this genuinely because there are some difficult and awful situations in the world. But I mean this, I think, from the bottom of my heart. No matter what anybody has done to you, it is not more than what you have done to Christ. No matter what they've done, Yes, I know. There are some awful situations out there. But no matter what anyone has done to you, it is not worse than what you have done to Christ. And he died for you to forgive you of your sins. True repentance. True repentance means that not only I hate my sin, I have remorse for it. I renounce it. I don't want to pursue it anymore. I turn from it. But I also want to make it right. So as far as it depends on you, Paul says, in as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone. In our life, we should be pursuing peace in every relationship. Reconciliation in every relationship. Because that's what glorifies and honors God. And that's what it means 
to repent and turn from our sins. Not only we turn away from them and renounce them and we hate them, but we seek to make it right. We seek to make it right because Jesus forgave us. And so even as he teaches us to pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. This guilt offering is a testimony for us of what it means and what it looks like to live a life of repentance. So the sin offering is given, our sins are forgiven, and the guilt offering is given to show that we want to give back and we want to make it even more right. We want to make it even more right. And ultimately, as we look at the scriptures, we see from beginning to end, it is God who has paid the guilt, uh, paid off the debt that we owe in our guilt. It is God who has made us who are guilty right before him, judge and the justifier, declaring us righteous, no longer guilty because of what Jesus has done. And so we live our life as people who have been forgiven. Man, that's what it means here in the sin offering and the guilt offering. We live our life as people, as people who have been forgiven. Think about what that means in everyday walk. As someone who's a sinner and been forgiven, we live our life in light of that. That's what this guilt offering represents, a lifestyle and an understanding that we've been forgiven of much, so we give back. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to depend completely today, right now, upon Jesus Christ, our Savior. We recognize we have no other offering. There is no other sacrifice. Jesus is it, and he's the one who has borne our griefs and our sorrows. He's the one who has smitten on our behalf, as your word says, crushed, cut in half, as Isaiah 53 says, for us. For surely our iniquities have been laid on him. He is our guilt offering, Father. So you have done everything for us required. All that's left for us to do is to trust you and turn from our sins. Faith and repentance. And so, God, I pray that we would be faithful to do just that. We would be a people to live like we're forgiven because we are. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and your gift to us. And if there's anybody here tonight who has not trusted you and are still in their sins, God, may tonight they seek the forgiveness that only you can give in Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. We'll see you all Sunday morning.